Welcome to The Leap Podcast. This is Kat Fan, Tammy Tran, and Tammy Bowie, your hosts for The Leap Podcast. Leap stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. episode already of season two I feel like we were just you know emailing our first guests for the season and now we've really I'm just I can't think of anyone better to end this season with than Linda Kutagawa um I agree with you Kat this I mean our guest is Linda Kutagawa and it, it would not be for her we would not have our podcast um she is the leader of Leap as our president and CEO and this one was a really emotional one I think in part because Kat and I know Linda very well and we've seen what she has gone through not only as a leader of an organization but also in a very powerful position that she was selected for as a member of the California Redistricting Commission But in reality, I feel like she has encompassed what we were trying to show this season, which is, you know, these emotions are really raw. There's no talking points that you can memorize when you're speaking about your community or how you react to certain things. And I'm just so grateful that we got a chance to share who we know Linda to be and not only as a person, but as a leader. So our audience is in for a very special treat And I'm really grateful that we have been together for this whole season and we have more to come. And one takeaway I would just remind everybody is that, you know, leadership is hard, um, especially when we have to deal with things like anti-Asian hate. But we we need to stick together. And you'll hear Linda talk about that, too, how important it is to make sure that you're always surrounded by people that support you, have your back and um, will will stand by you as you deal with these um, challenges of leadership. So we have a super exciting episode today. I will admit we kind of cheated because we have been talking, some of us for years on end, some of us just recently, and you know, most of us just kind of having a catch up right before the recording. But we have the one and only Linda Kutagawa, who is president and CEO of Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. If we have not belligerent that into your heads that is the leap in the leap podcast so we have the one and only president and ceo putting the leap in the leap podcast with us and we can think of no one better than to end up this season especially in such a really important month for our api communities than linda so welcome 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 linda and we're hashtag break the bias and nobody does that better than Linda, along with um, your team at Leap and all the leaders that you have surrounded yourself over the years. So Yeah, and I'm fortunate that I have such an awesome team and any leader is only as good as the people around them. And so I've mm-hmm. just been fortunate that I have people who are committed and passionate and talented and just really believe deeply in the work that we do, but also the work that we're doing on behalf of our Asian and Pacific Islander communities. So I uh, feel privileged and I feel honored that I'm able to lead this organization and do the work that I'm doing. Linda, I don't think I know this, but can you tell us a little bit about your family background, who your parents are and a little yeah. bit about that? I don't yeah. know that. Kat, do you? <laughs> I don't. We want to hear the yes. full Batman. Oh, the, the full everything. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and it's interesting because I never thought of, you know, just 
sharing all that, but I've been, I've been, I'll say I've been practicing trying to share a little bit more about that. So I'll just start by saying, I, I think I, I realize that part of what we're doing at Leap is to try to reframe how people see Asian Americans, uh, Pacific Islanders, particularly for me as a as someone who's of Asian heritage, I'm Japanese American. I think there's obviously stereotypes that get put upon me, and there's assumptions about my family background as well too. And I realize that it's not necessarily what people might think it is, and maybe there are aspects that maybe what people do think it is. So I'll just start by saying that my parents are both immigrants from Japan. So both my parents are from uh, Hiroshima, Japan. They're both in in Hiroshima when when the atomic bomb was dropped. My mom was an official atomic bomb survivor. My dad said that my grandfather, because of his pride, just never wanted to be acknowledged as such. So they don't have the official designation. And it means something in Japan, I guess. Um, but my grandfather actually was born in the U.S. But unusually for that time when my grandfather was growing up, he was an only child. And so apparently, this is the story that I've been told. My grand, great-grandparents moved back to Japan when he was something like nine or 10. So I always thought it was kind of interesting wow. that his English was actually a lot better and um, than even like, say, my dad or, or even my grandma. And it wasn't until later that I really learned more of the story about how long he lived in the U.S. before they returned back to Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to this is the story as told to me by my grandmother. Mm-hmm. She said that my great grandparents moved back because they wanted him to be able to marry a Japanese woman, to be able to live and take care of them in Japan mm-hmm. and, you know, all that. He went back married the Japanese woman, but ended up coming back to the U.S. after the war because the opportunities were obviously a lot better here. My dad followed once he graduated from high school, and so he entered the U.S. J-18, ended up serving in the U.S. Army in the during the time of the Korean War. My mom came in the early mm. 60s, and then my parents met, and then, you know, the rest is history from there, too. Um, so what what's oftentimes not known is... My neither of my parents have a four year degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So technically in my family, I was the first in my family to get um, a four year college degree. My dad went to Pasadena City College. He got a AA degree there, you know, during a time when people were able to have more options in terms of a career and, and the kind of professional work. He was an engineer. And so he worked as an engineer up until the time he he retired. My my mom finished high school, but never went to college. And so I I oftentimes realize that that's one of the stereotypes that I think people have mm-hmm. of anyone who might be Asian, right? That I may have advanced degrees. Uh, my, my parents or my family members all have advanced degrees. That's not necessarily true. I do have my bachelor's, but I don't have, you know, a graduate or a PhD. That's just what it is. And so... You know, I would just say that in some ways I'm not unlike a lot of other people. And yet I think sometimes these stereotypes do get put upon me. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley or as known as the SGV. When I grew up there, it was a very it's a working class community. It was also either working class white or Mexican-American. I tell people I say that intentionally because when I was growing up during that time, the immigration was uh, 
the patterns were a lot different. Everybody who was there were Mexican-American, most likely there, you know, for probably a number of years. There weren't a whole lot. There wasn't as much of the immigration and the diversity from a Latino community perspective as there is now. So it was an it was an interesting kind of neighborhood. There were gangs. Yes. And it was kind of the norm. And we all just kind of like that was just the way it was. It was interesting going um, to school there and then going on to high school. And I mentioned that because the high school that I went to, it, it was interesting. And it was a interesting place in the sense that I could count on one hand how many Asians were at the school. It was also very different from the school the junior high and the elementary schools that I had gone to, the junior high and elementary schools that I went to were predominantly Latino. And again, some working class whites. The high school that I went to was very much a more affluent white community, a small handful of Latinos. Like I said, I could count on one hand how many Asians and count on one hand how many African-Americans there were in the school as well, too. So it was a very different kind of experience and one that was challenging because, you know, high school is a tough time. And when you're different, it becomes even more challenging. Mm-hmm. I find it really interesting when you were sharing about your origin story. I, I knew about you growing up in the Sinkerville Valley, but not knowing about your grandfather's origin until later. Right. And I Kat, I think you probably relate that there's so much about our family history that we don't learn sequentially. Right. We kind of learn it in bits and pieces. And at certain parts of our lives, it becomes more important for us to find to find those stories. Like I feel like when I was in college, that was when I really started exploring my identity, you know, and my especially my identity as part of the larger API community. You know, growing up, I was Vietnamese. I grew up in Little Saigon, much like Kat did, too. And so this larger kind of pan Asian community. It's something that was very new to me. Can you talk a little bit about um, the leadership role that you have today? You're currently the executive director of LEAP. And as Kat said, LEAP is Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. And it's Asian, you know, Asian Pacifics. It's not just Japanese. It's not just Vietnamese. It's not just Korean or Chinese or Pacific Islander. And and so with that comes the challenges of being different. You know, we're, we're, to your point about growing up in high school, I feel like in a lot of ways, the larger world is very much like high school when you think about how we're certain we're viewed as different and then within the API communities there's so many differences so how did you find yourself as a leader of this organization you know finding that leadership or that identity for APIs within the larger American society let me just start by saying how I came to LEAP. I, I took part in a program through what was at the time the Asian Pacific American Legal Center, which is now known as AAAJ. I met uh, the then president and CEO or executive director, J.D. Hokuyama, and I had heard about LEAP and I just started volunteering or I had offered to volunteer mainly because I thought, you know what, if I volunteer, I too can learn some of these leadership skills. So that's how I got involved and my volunteerism turned into a job and I been at LEAP for a fairly long time. And part of it is I always feel like everything and anything that there's been to do in an organization, I've probably have tried it. Sounds very and familiar. Some, volunteering. Uh, yes. Job. <laughs> yes, that's right. Cat. And, <laughs> and, oh, what an interesting origin story. I mean, that, that's right, right? I mean, it's so very common. <laughs> 
And go ahead. You know, Linda. I mean, just being with being mm-hmm. part of Leap for such a long time, mm-hmm. I really feel like my my journey into leadership in Leap, I think part of it was because I had been a part of just the what I would consider the growth and just being able to contribute to its ability to do the work that it's done. I feel like, okay, well, now this is a chance for me to put into practice a lot of what I had learned over the years of, of working at LEAP and doing the work that we've been doing. I kind of jokingly said this too, and it's kind of true and it's kind of not, but it's more true than not, the whole imposter syndrome. Uh, when I got hired on, I, I was certain I was certain that I was going to get fired within the first year, if not if not the first year, then at least the first two or three years. Um, and I'll just I, I will say that I've lasted 10 years. So either I've done something right. Linda, you have been doing something right. There is no other. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so that's how I came into the leadership here. And, and along the way, I really feel like I have been fortunate enough that I've been able to really grow. And each year, each time, you know, we have twists and turns in just the way life continues to be. I mean, you know, who knew that I would be leading an organization through a pandemic and having to do things very differently I mean, that's how we grow. And that's how I feel like I've been able to grow as a leader as well, too. No, I'm so appreciative of everything that you have said. And it just really puts into perspective this idea of like, who gets to be a leader, right? Like, how do you get to be a leader? And I know that we, you and I have been talking, you know, offline about like, oh, like we don't feel remarkable. I've definitely felt exactly how you felt. And I still do. Whereas TikTok, like, I'm going to get fired any moment now. Or like, wow, like, they probably think I'm really talented when they first meet me. But then they're going to realize that I suck or something or insert negative adjective, whatever it is. But I think it's good for us to challenge ourselves as well as like, well, who taught us, like, what these standards of leadership are these correct? And I really deeply resonate with this idea that anyone can be a leader. During the 2020 elections at my previous organizations, there's always this idea of like an origin story. Like, who are you? And you're trying to share it with people. And then of course, then you're trying to transition into it. Now I want you to be a part of this goal of democracy and part of the community. And I've had so many folks come up to me like, but I'm not interested. You know, like I'm not a phoenix rising from the ashes. I haven't survived like wars or crossed oceans or like pulled myself out of the deepest levels of despair. Like I feel like an imposter telling people who I am and being a representative of an organization. And I can understand those fears. And I think we all have felt that way in some capacity. But on the flip side, the unremarkable is remarkable. The fact that anybody could do this and anyone can have the power to decide, like, today I am a leader and tomorrow I will be too. And the day after, I think that shows a lot more tenacity. Just showing up consistently because you believe in something, that's so rare. I would say that's the key component of being a leader, just thinking that you can show up and be better and help people 
be better. So in reality, the everyday person, like those are the real superheroes. And I think that's something that you, Linda, embody, even if you don't believe in that all the time. And I think it's a good reminder, and especially what Leap does too, you can be authentically yourself. And it's not more, it's not less, it is just the right amount. Yeah, and I think, thanks Kat for saying that, because it just makes me think that we we can surprise ourselves you know, going into something, whether it's a new job or, or a new role or a new opportunity, even speaking on a panel or something like that, you think, oh, I don't know why they asked me, you know, what am I going to be able to contribute? What am I going to have to say that is going to have value? How am I going to lead this group of really accomplished people or, or even hold my own with anybody else who are really, you know, accomplished. And I think at the end, once you, once you get into it, you, you start to realize that everything you've learned to do, whether it's just through life or through school or through your interactions with family and friends and other people, you figure out ways in which you can pull from all those experiences and really be able to show up both as your most authentic self, but also more importantly, you're going to have to lead in the way that really that you can do best. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. I feel like for as long as I've been leading Leap and doing the work that I've been doing, I continue to learn something new all the time. And part of it is because of the people that I'm fortunate enough to work with, the other with people that I'm fortunate enough to have in my life, either through because of other opportunities outside of Leap or within Leap. And I, for me, it just really feels like I continue to to get better, both as a person, but also as a leader. And and yet that also, I realize that humility and that curiosity and that desire to really be open and flexible and adaptable to not thinking you are already, you, you got it all right. You're all that and you're perfect. None of us are. And I think if we continue to be open to, we can always continue to grow. I think that just enables us to continue to become a better leader each time. And no, I'm, I'm, I'm just marinating and all the good sauce that you've shared with us, Linda. I am so curious because as some of us may know, it is Leap's 40th. Leap is one whole person, 40 years old, it feels like. A cognizant, breathing entity. And which is a We're an older millennial. We're an older, yeah, your Leap is an older millennial. <laughs> Still trendy, but doesn't understand. I was going to date myself because Leap is as old as I am. So yes, I consider myself a senior millennial, but I have heard ger- geriatric millennial, but I don't approve of that language. <laughs> 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 it's it's like a backhanded compliment. Right. Backhanded compliment. <laughs> but hey, Tammy, Tammy Tran's doing great for herself. So, you know, if we're in the upper echelon of Tammy Trans, we're at least doing something great. <laughs> I bring that up because this idea of being a leader, sometimes it feels like we're starting something new. But then at the mm-hmm. same time, we are very much in some sense, inheriting the previous generation's accomplishments and struggles. And what I mean to say is, like Tammy shared today, or what Tammy shared this month is Women's History Month. 
by the time this episode airs, the one year anniversary of the Atlanta shooting will have passed. You know, Vincent Chin's murder was also 40 years ago. The Oak Creek shooting was also 40 years ago. It's a very poignant year in not always the most celebratory ways, but at the same time, it offers us an ability to reflect. So I'm just so curious, Linda, like throughout your career as being a part of LEAP and also just being a leader, how have these different stages of, you know, anti-Asian hate, violence, how they appeared in your life? And does it does it get easier? And I also wonder too, like, cause when the Atlanta shooting happened, like I'm in my mid twenties. So for me, my ability to react and my ability to process, I can only imagine will be very different than in, you know, than in my thirties or my forties, fifties, so on. And so I'm just curious for you, like, as these events are happening within our API communities, do you react the same? Is it different and now that you are president and ceo of like a national api centric organization do you feel like you can do more wow that's a great question and thanks for asking that so let me start with the vincent chin murder because yeah it is about 40 years and it it, and i'll put it in the context of maybe just like stages in my life as well, too. So when I think about the Vincent Chin murder, I mean, that was really what I think galvanized me to just be more aware of of both being someone who's of Asian heritage and just really the struggles and the issues facing the community. I was in college at that time and just really trying to figure out what's this mean? And I wanted to also look for ways, how do I get involved because of that? And so And honestly, I think in some ways that also galvanized a lot of other organizations. I mean, LEAP was founded in that same year and there were a number of other API organizations founded in that same year. And I think a lot of it was galvanized by just this idea that um, with impunity that somebody could be murdered and and really, you know, his murderers never having served a day in any kind of, of, of prison or being incarcerated because a judge says, you know, these are not the kind of people that you put into jail, right? I mean, that was one big kind of moment was, was the LA riots, the unrest that happened with the Rodney King um, beating that happened here in Los Angeles that then le- led to what we saw in LA's Koreatown. And I think there's definitely a much more nuanced perspective than oftentimes was told in stories, but we're facing the 30th anniversary of of that time frame. And that was also another significant time frame in, in our community. And one of the reasons why I want to also mention that too is that was the year that I started Leap as a full-time employee. And, and I just remember we were going to do a program and there were just all kinds of things happening around the city and just having to try to reach people to tell them, okay, look, we need to cancel it because, you know, this is pre, pre-email, pre-text, pre-everything. you know everything. And so just trying to understand what this was going to mean for us. And so that was, to me, another, I'll say, event affecting our community that was just really seared in my experience. 
and it, it, it intersects with LEAP. I, I think the other one that you mentioned, Oak Creek, was actually about 10 years ago. I think it just really spoke to again, how wide ranging and how diverse our communities are, but how aspects of our community, particularly South Asians, continue to suffer the effects of 9-11 and how they continue to be targeted, even if, in this case, the hate crime that was brought upon uh, a Sikh community and being, again, mistaken for being Muslim, and it's not, and um, being mistaken for being Muslim, that should never have happened anyways, too, but all these kinds of things that get wrapped up in our communities, identities, and how people, you know, there there are people that still think of us as a broader community as still an other. And then that brings us to the one-year anniversary of the murders in Atlanta with the women uh, that were killed and how initially the the reaction was, oh, you know, he's having a bad day. You had eight women that were, eight people that were murdered. It was first off just really brushed off as not being a hate crime, but yet these spas were targeted because this person supposedly or allegedly knew that you were staffed by, by Asians. And so as I think about that moment a year ago, this was coming after a year of, I would say, anti-Asian hate directed at, you know, a community and for up to that year, really not getting a whole lot of attention. I mean, there was a lot of data that was being shared. There was a lot of stories being shared about the continued assaults, harassment, both verbal and physical happening to us. But it wasn't until that happened that, I don't know, I think it was, that was just it. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it was just, we couldn't take any more. And I know that I felt, I, I had this feeling of just real rage, but also upset because it's like, this is now where we are because we were just brushed aside and most people just didn't pay attention until it took eight people being killed and losing their life. And mm. yet what we're seeing is that that hasn't faded away. And then on top of that, that mm. was that was following what had happened in Minneapolis mm. to George Floyd and, mm. and just continuing to remind ourselves that while this was happening to us, this had been happening to other communities for much, much longer. And just really being reflective about what drives people to this and, and the kind of work that continues to need to be done to ensure that not only understanding, but that this feeling of safety and belonging can be be advocated for. I, I guess I'm just kind of like. Uh, it's a lot. I'm just kind of talking. Yeah. I it's mean, yeah, there's so much and I'm probably not making sense right yeah. now, but I oh. just like think about everything's flooding my brain right now yeah. about all these things <clears throat> happening. And, you know, the more recent, you know, murders of mm-hmm. Michelle Go and mm-hmm. um, New York, Christina, you know, yeah, in New York. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you think you could do all the right things and yet still, you know, things are still continuing to happen. Mm-hmm. And, 
And it's not is new. It because we're more, right? Yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, yeah. you, you talked about Vincent and it reminded me every time someone brings up Vincent Chen, which was before I was born. Um, and I can't, of course, when you were born, Kat, but it reminds me of someone else that was very, who, who was a victim of a hate crime similar to Vincent Chen, and his name was Lee Minping. So, Kat, I don't know if you're familiar, but he was a UCLA student. He was a bright star in his Vietnamese family. Yeah, Linda, you recall, right? Lee Minping. And he was murdered and it was a hate crime. And he was, you know, he was, he was out skating and he was murdered in Tustin here in Orange County. But it's not new. That happened in 1996. So I remember because I was a teenager at the time and I remember having friends who were in college who knew him and it was very devastating to our Vietnamese community. I remember the pain. And so when these things happened this past year, it just reminded me that as progress is made, like especially in places like the workplace and in, in the media, and we see more Asian American representation and leadership, but that otherness, the hate against the foreign, the otherness is still there. And, and it's a scary, it's a really scary thing to see. The stories we hear is just the, the stories that get visibility, right? Yeah. And, and in some ways, I guess the question that I have even now is, are the, is, we're hearing definitely a lot more, but the question I have is, were a lot of these stories there, but they just didn't get that visibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the mm-hmm. ones that we hear now shouldn't be heard from. I'm glad that we're hearing from them. But it also makes me think, what did we not hear from before? And what can we do to ensure <clears throat> that that families get justice, but also we can advocate safety? I mean, there's so many different kinds of layers of yes. all different kinds of things, right? And not only for us, but for anybody, everybody, all people of color as well, too, especially because they're oftentimes the most targeted for violence. And Mm -hmm. as women, right, there's issues around violence against women, against trafficking of women. And then there's intersections of when you're a woman of color. And then Mm -hmm. if you're a person of color, it, 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 yeah, I, I, I'm going to do a plug here because I feel if we just focus on the violence, the pain, it could be really overwhelming, right? And and to the point where it's paralyzing. But what I think is that's why we need organizations like LEAP. That's why we need leadership for Asian Pacifics, because the more we see people in leadership roles, the more that we're able to have our voice, the more we're able to be seen. And then those that don't know us, right, those that have not experienced diversity or inclusion or they have that opportunity. So I feel like that's what we need to do is lean into organizations like Leap. And you're doing that, Linda. You've done that. And not only as a nonprofit leader, but you've also done it as a public servant. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about that, because one of the things and Kat, the name of our um, our podcast is Leap, right? The Leap podcast. And it started between the three of us, Kat, Tammy Blue, who couldn't be with us today, and I taking leaps of faith. Right. Not only in our personal lives, but also in putting together this podcast so that we can share our stories, our thoughts and make connections to people. And we've made connections not only through the people that we've talked to on this podcast, but people that listen to it. So we really appreciate those that are listening to our podcast by taking a belief of faith and spending 45 minutes of your time <laughs> to listen to us. But maybe you can talk about the leap of faith that you took by um, putting yourself out there and applying for one of the very coveted roles. I don't know if it's coveted, but it is coveted roles on the, the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was? And maybe I'll start with one question and we'll have 
Kat and I will have follow up questions for you is what kind of drove you to kind of take that leap of faith and put yourself out there in such a public and position with so much responsibility and power? So uh, thanks for asking that. I will say it first started out with just seeing a, I'll just say a call out. I think it was an email from, from an organization saying that, that the California Citizens Redistricting Commission was seeking applicants for the commission. And that part of the reason why there was a additional push was that the initial pool of applicants was not quite as diverse as as was desired. And so I thought, okay, I I thought about it. I mean, I, I, I actually thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I should just because if there's a more diverse pool, then the likelihood of having a more diverse commission is going to be higher. I'll say that I started the application. I stopped the application. I started it. And I was one of those that didn't tell anybody actually, because I thought, okay, I don't know if I want to do this. And then the other thing too is, and maybe this is very Asian of me too, hashtag very Asian. I, I thought, well, okay, if I, if I, what if I apply and I don't get selected for it? I thought, okay, how embarrassing will that be? But then at the same time, and I heard someone say this, but if you, if you do put it out, how can, you know, the possibility of somebody being able to help. So I, I, I started and stopped and finally at the very last minute, I ended up submitting my application because I thought, all right, I was really, what was in the back of my mind is that, if at least if I don't try, then my complaints about not having more diversity in our public institutions is kind of like false. I felt like this was an opportunity for me to put my money where my mouth was in the sense of putting action to the things that I've been advocating for for a very long time in terms of any one of us stepping up to a leadership role when we have that opportunity. And I thought, well, at the very least, let me just put it in there and I'll see where I go. And I'll confess, I mean, I was kind of surprised that each time I got an email saying, okay, you've been moved to the next uh, phase. I was a little surprised and I thought, okay, but I didn't want to get my hopes up too much. But I, I will say that one of the things that I do want to acknowledge Tammy, is that you've been so supportive because I think you were probably one of the only ones that I told about it. And and I'll be honest, I mean, part of it was, I think I'm glad that I told somebody because in some ways, I think if I had it, it would have been easy to have just kind of given up and just say, oh, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. But I think what I realized is that because you knew and and you felt it was important and you encouraged me and you pushed me to not give up. I just want to say that you're one of the reasons why I'm here. I mean, it, it really was because of your your support and encouragement that really enabled me to just really see that this this is something that was possible, but also important. I knew it was important, but you made it more real. I, I don't know what to say, but maybe I can describe for our listeners, we're crying tears here. <laughs> and I think it's more tears of connection and and how much that means to us. Linda, you're a leader and you've had such an impact on me. And that means so much more than 
you know, what we can share in this like 45 minutes together. I know that's not easy because I myself and have worked for public officials that it's hard when you put yourself out there. And especially as an Asian American and an Asian American woman to put yourself out there. And, and even though you have people behind you, it's lonely, right? I mean, especially when you have to be there and hear from the public and, and, and also be to represent your community. And I saw you, Linda. I mean, I saw how strong you were on that dais as you listened to what, over 50,000 public comments or something along those lines. <laughs> We had over 36,000 okay. public comments. Yeah. Yep. And some of them were not friendly, I would say. I don't know how else to put it. Right, Kat? And you, you followed too. So how... Unfortunately and fortunately, yeah. yeah, I followed everything on the spectrum that you could have imagined people say. It was definitely said on the redistrict to the redistricting committee. And because I worked for public officials and been kind of that kind of adjacent public role, I mean, I, I haven't been out there myself, but I worked for public officials. And I, I see that, especially nowadays with social media and how easy it is for people to put stuff out there. And when it's anonymous, people are even more bold to say things that are not nice and not kind. And so, Linda, can I don't know. I mean, I don't want to uh, focus just on the negative, but if you can share some of the things that were hard, you know, that were hard about being in this very public and powerful role. I will confess I was a little naive going into it. I went in and I think, honestly, I think all of us, anybody who goes into it, or at least, you know, I'll just say at least I think for for my colleagues on the commission, I think we all went in with positive intent mm-hmm. tonight. And I would say that at the end of the day, it was a great learning experience for me. And I'm absolutely glad that I did do it. I, I really feel like I grew as a person as a result of it. There were things that were very tough about it that I don't think I was prepared for. And I realized that I will probably never be a politician because... <laughs> my skin is too thin. I had to learn very quickly to just try to hold a poker face when I'm getting comments directed at me for various reasons. And the same with some of the other commissioners Mm -hmm. as well. Some were easier to, I don't want to say ignore, but um, some were less personal. Some were just directed at us because a a commission as the body, but some were, some of the comments that we got were very personal and very unkind, Mm -hmm. I'll say. Mm -hmm. And so trying to stay focused on what the bigger picture is, what I'm doing on the commission and what we as a body are tasked to do Mm -hmm. and are working our best to ensure that we can honor the best interests of the entire state of California and the people and the residents of California. Not And, and while I was there because I was there as someone from the Asian American community, I still had a responsibility to the entire state and people of California. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one that I think I, along with my other 13 commissioner, fellow commissioners, all took very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. L- 
Linda, I will say as a citizen, following the, those public hearings and things like that, Linda Kutagawa, you represented our API community very well. It, it was very clear to me that you educated your fellow commissioners about the nuances of our Asian American community. We're not monolithic. We don't live in one city. Our communities, our residents, we our businesses where we frequent, there's a lot of discussion around communities of interest and, and they bleed into other communities. And so I know those are very hard discussions, hard conversations to have, and you had them. So as, as a citizen, as an API, I was very proud to see you representing our community in that commission. And a part of me, when I when I heard those, those very personal comments that were directed towards you that were negative, unkind, and untrue, what, what I thought about is they were not personal because they don't know who you are, Linda. A lot of those comments came from people that didn't know you, and they were probably motivated by other things. And if you understand, if we understand that, then, you know, those things can just, you can be Teflon, <laughs> you know, at, at some point, right? But Linda, you made me proud. And I think that's something that we should celebrate because that type of leadership is not easy, right? And, and especially for Asian Americans and APIs to be in that kind of role, it's not easy. And and when people are willing to step out and, and assume those roles, we need to back our leaders. We need to support them. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt that a lot of the decisions they make take into a lot of things into consideration that we may not be aware of. And so we should trust our leaders when they take these roles. Don't you agree, Kat? Absolutely. And this whole conversation has really made me reconsider what it means to take a leap of faith because the picturesque leap of faith is you have a <laughs> running start carried by momentum and you're just gracefully in the air and then you ballerina pose on the other <laughs> side easy peasy but in reality a lot of these leaps are faith leaps of faith are you have no running start you're just kind of like here i go into this unknown dark abyss <laughs> And then the hang time when you're in the air, things are still happening. Like what, Linda, you were saying, you started and stopped mm -hmm. the application many times. I think we're so quick to assume that people just make these decisions 100%. But in reality, it can be 100% one day. And the next mm -hmm. day, it's zero. And the next day, it's 25 and so on and so forth. And then when you finally have that time to come back to the other side, even if it's a destination that you are proud of and you're happy of, sometimes you get there just by crashing into it. And it's only when you're lying there kind of being reflective of like, wow, what just happened? That you can finally let the pain subside and actually pick yourself up and then continue the journey. Because that's the thing. The leap of faith is not stationary. Like you are taking this leap to go somewhere else and you're still going to go there. And so I think this has been such a reflective and, and really metaphorical example of that. And Linda, I would love to hear your opinion on this, too, because I think with redistricting, it's a very technical kind of mm -hmm. process. But I'm realizing as the conversation happens is a very select group of people know about it, whether they're already civically engaged, whether they work mm -hmm. or whether they, like Cammy said, someone they care about or an organization they care about motivates them to say certain things. Why is redistricting so important and why did it get so convoluted in terms of representation? 
So redistricting is important because it is about, well, one, it happens every 10 years. So that's why it becomes this kind of like out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. And it only happens every 10 years. And it's in alignment with the completion of the census and then rebalancing all of the representative districts. So your state Senate, your state assembly, your Congress, and your board of equalization in the state of California. And the idea that equal representation is the number one goal of redistricting, because as we know, people move and people are born, people pass away. And so that kind of rebalancing has to happen. And so it happens every 10 years along with the census. And so in doing so, it's also an opportunity to to look at what are the groupings of cities and regions and communities so that they can be best put together in a a district or grouping that will enable them to have the best chance of potentially electing a candidate that they feel will represent the interests of that particular grouping or district. And so one of the things I'll just say in the state of California is that our district sizes are humongous because we got a lot of people here. And so we have very large districts. Sometimes that also groups together. Sometimes what people, some depends on who you, who's looking and who's kind of perspective you're kind of coming from, you know, sometimes you're going to have communities that some people might say, oh, they don't belong together. But we, as a commission solicited from throughout the state, as much input as we could get from communities from the very far north to the very far south, east to west, and everything in between to understand what are the communities. There were hard choices that were sometimes made, partly because of the equal population requirement that we have. Sometimes that meant we couldn't include as many communities. Sometimes we had to split cities. Sometimes we had to split counties. Again, it all comes back to a set of criteria that we had to follow, equal population being number one. And with, for example, the congressional district, that means that our deviation can only be either like minus one or plus one. That was it. I mean, there was not low like, okay, you could go like 500 people over or something like that. It was just like one person. And so it makes it very hard. And sometimes you're trying to make the sizes work. And so that's number one. Second is the Voting Rights Act and following the federal law on that. And so ensuring that communities that fall under a Voting Rights Act, you know, where perhaps they may have been disenfranchised, will have a better opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. So we were looking at that. And and that's something that if you read any of the on our our end, end product, which were the maps, we were able to successfully achieve the goals that were, there were six goals that we had a criteria that we had to follow and we were able to successfully achieve all of that. Tammy, you said that, I mean, and and Kat, you said it too. I was really proud. I mean, it, it took a lot of work for all of us to get there, but we were really proud of where we ended up on that. The other thing that I would say, if I could just put this little plug in for independent redistricting, I think we are 14 citizens, just normal people. We are not 
politicians. Mm -hmm. We are not political people. I knew very little about redistricting (laughs) in some ways. You might wonder, like, why did I choose to do that? And like I said, I thought, okay, well, I'll just throw my hat in the in the the ring because, you know, the more diverse the pool is, the better the likelihood will have. I honestly did not think at the time that I was going to make it all the way through and and actually be seated onto the commission. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think that with this, we are the second independent redistricting commission that Mm -hmm. California has had. 2030 will be the third. We believe or we hope that each each iteration brings more awareness and attention to what we're doing and that more people will continue to want to engage and be interested and hopefully apply and give input about their communities and That's what I'm hoping we'll eventually see is that the continued engagement of all of our diverse communities in California to ensure representation on the commission that will then ensure districts and groupings of cities and counties in these districts that really reflect and represent the diversity that is California. And on, on that note, I think that's a note of celebration because that representation of our API communities is growing. And I and I feel like it's because of service like yours on the Citizens Redistricting Commission. And it's also because of our API um, community's participation in the public process, right? And, and when we go to vote. And I think that's so important, especially this year. We're in an election year. It's midterms. And we also have our previous guest, the Attorney General, who's the first API. Well, not the first API, because Kamala Harris was the first API, but the first Filipino to serve in that role at a very high role. And I, I think we're just starting or we're continuing actually we'll see more and more api leadership in these roles and despite the pain of being invisible and the pain of being seen as the other and the foreign i think in a lot of ways we're we're making a lot of progress and we just have to push forward and lean in that's right and if i can just say something about an article that i saw that it, it was speaking in the sports context but i think this is something that applies in any context to this idea of asian americans being vividly overrepresented and and honestly mm-hmm. speaking i was so bothered i was just like right you know what is vividly overrepresented? And sometimes I feel like that's used against us to say you don't belong. There's only room for so many of you. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that is the worst thing that one can say to any community. I think that we have to continue to push through and to fight for our engagement and our representation and our participation. And we need to also include that for all communities, Mm -hmm. um, especially communities of color that have been put off to the side and marginalized Mm -hmm. and disenfranchised. I think we need to encourage that. We need to push and pull them along, just like we need to push and pull along our community as well, too. And I think that that's a responsibility that we all have. And just reminding ourselves that we're only going to be better in our diversity absolutely, and, and being inclusive and being equitable, but also more importantly, ensuring that everybody and anybody feels like they belong. And that's what I think makes our fight for democracy that much more important. 